Okay, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're going through verse by verse, and um, we've come to this portion of the letter. So let me read 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6 through 15. 15. Now, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model, for you so that you would follow our example for even when we were with you we used to give you this order if anyone is not willing to work then he is not to eat either for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life doing no work at all but acting like busybodies now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. We've come to the practical section of this little letter uh, to the church in Thessalonica in chapter 3. And in this chapter, Paul addresses a particular sin that was plaguing the church in Thessalonica. It was hurting everyone in the church. And Paul had been addressing this sin for a long time. This was not the first time that he had addressed it. This was not the first time that he had, uh, that they had heard of him speaking about it. And yet there were some in the church that were persisting in this sin. And so it had reached a point where it needed to be dealt with, and dealt with not just with words, which he had been using so far, but also with deeds. And so um, what Paul is speaking about here, what Paul is commanding the church to engage in is church discipline toward those who are um, persisting in the sin that were part of this church. And so our passage is as much or more about church discipline as it is about the specific sin that was a problem in the church in Thessalonica. And so I've entitled this message, Instructions for Church Discipline. At this church, we've had um, instances of church discipline, I think several times in our history, I think three times and one recently. So uh, this message is important for you. It's important for us. It's not by coincidence that the, the Lord has us here in this passage, even though we're just going through this uh, um, epistle. We'll spend a little bit of time on the actual sin that was a particular problem in this particular church because Paul describes it in this passage. But when it comes to church discipline, it doesn't matter the particular sin. Church discipline is for any unrepentant sin. That's really what it's for. It's for uh, unrepentant sin or what was called in the Old Testament high-handed sin. It's sin where when you sit down and confront the person about it, they say, well, no, I'm, I'm going to keep doing 
what I'm doing. I'm not, I'm not going to stop with this uh, sin. And so I point that out because we all sin. The church is full of uh, sinners. If, if uh, sin was uh, to cause us to be put under church discipline, we would all be under church discipline. In fact, Paul, um, earlier in earlier letters to the Thessalonian church, tells them to be patient with everybody, but to help the weak, help those who are uh, weak and, and uh, struggling. But church discipline is for those claiming to be Christians, part of the church, and yet involved in unrepentant sin. And so someone involved in unrepentant sin, after time, needs to be put out of the church. And the reason is because unrepentant sin is so uncharacteristic of a Christian. It just doesn't belong. That's not what a Christian does, is a Christian persists in sin without uh, repenting of it. And so church discipline is what is commanded in that situation in Scripture, both for the good of the church, so that that sin doesn't spread, so that that doesn't become the norm in the church, is unrepentant sin, but also for, and equally, for the good of the person. It's not good for that person to be a part of the church while they're not acting like a Christian. And so it's a wake-up call uh, to them and, and actually a grace uh, towards them, it's, which is why it's important that we uh, obey what the Scripture has to say about this. So... This morning, uh, I want to look at this passage. First, what the sin was, and that's in verse 7 through 11. Then Paul's admonition to those sinning, and that's in verse 12. And then finally, what the faithful were to do, and especially in imposing the church discipline. And that's in verse 13 through 15. And we'll also go back to verse 6, uh, because that also tells the, the faithful what they were to do in this uh, situation. So first, let's look at what the sin was what the sin was that was in uh, the church in Thessalonica. And Paul has a phrase that he uses for this particular sin. He calls it living an unruly life, living an unruly life, undisciplined, disorderly behavior. And he's referring to something very specific when he refers to that. One is what they weren't doing and what is what they were doing. And this was a particular problem there. And what they weren't doing was working. They weren't, they weren't working. And um, so Paul points out in this passage that this is very different from what Paul and Silas and Timothy were doing when they were there. It says in verse 7 and 8, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner. There's that word, that unruly word. We didn't act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor. And hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. And so Paul points out that when he was there, he didn't live an unruly life among them. He worked. He worked for his his bread. And so did Silas and Timothy when they were there. God created men and women to work. Uh, there will be work for us to do in heaven. He created Adam and Eve to work in the Garden uh, of Eden. They were to work creatively um, and uh, work for the glory of God. Because of the curse, we work now by the sweat of our brow. The Lord says to Adam, you will eat bread and then return to the ground. In other words, Adam's work now is for survival. It's not just for expressing God's glory, but it's for survival. But even in this cursed world, work is good. Work is good and we're created for work. It's actually a blessing. People don't, sometimes people don't think of it in that way or speak of work uh, in that way, but it's actually a blessing from the Lord to um, be involved 
in uh, work, and it's it's essential for life as God has uh, created it and preserved it, even in this fallen uh, world. So in telling them to get back to work, which is what he's been telling them for a, a long time, Paul is not telling the Thessalonians to do anything that he wasn't doing himself. In fact, he made a point of doing this when he was there among them, even though he was uh, on a missionary journey and uh, uh, passing through. He set the example for them in not living an undisciplined life, not being idle uh, in this way. And he says in verse 8, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. And uh, I don't think he means by that that they never went over to somebody's house for dinner and got a meal from them without paying for it. That's not what he's referring to. What he means is that they didn't get a living from anybody. They didn't get um, um, board and uh, um, food uh, from anyone freely without uh, paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any uh, of you. Uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy, I don't know how much work they did, but they did enough to support themselves. And uh, they were actually involved in teaching the Thessalonians. And even in these short letters, whenever Paul comes to a subject, he says, no, we taught you about this. You already know this because we already taught you about this. And it, it gets into even detailed parts of uh, theology. So Paul and Silas and Timothy did a great deal of teaching in Thessalonica, even in the short time that they were there. But they were also working for uh, their living. I don't know how much they worked, but he says here we worked both by day and also by night. Doesn't mean they were working around the clock. They weren't, but uh, it means sometimes at nighttime they were working, and sometimes in the daytime they uh, were working uh, as well in order to at least make enough to have a place to stay and have enough uh, for them to eat to supply themselves. Paul wanted them to know that they didn't act this way because uh, preachers of the gospel don't have the right to be supported for the work that they're doing. That's uh, said elsewhere that the laborer is worthy of his hire, even even one uh, ministering to the Lord. And so he says that in verse 19. It's not because we do not have the right to do this, as long as they're working in the church, they have the right to be supported. Not because we do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. So Paul went above and beyond to provide a good example, and probably because he knew that the Thessalonians were especially prone to this sin. In fact, it was already a problem in the church when Paul was uh, still there, that people were uh, tended to not uh, work. And so instead of um, him working, teaching in the church and being supported as was due uh, to him, he foregoed that uh, right and um, not only taught them for free, but also worked with his hands. He was a tent maker and uh, was involved in a trade in order to uh, support uh, support himself. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. And so even in the short time that Paul was in the church in Thessalonica, this was already a problem. They had to say this and they had to say this more than once, uh, that if someone doesn't... Um, work, if they're not willing to work, then they shouldn't eat either. I'm sure it's different in the case of somebody with a disability, but he's talking about somebody who's not willing to work, someone who's able to work. If he's not able uh, to work, then he's not able, then he should not eat uh, either. And so this was already a, a problem uh, to them. And this is a problem 
that Paul had been dealing with for a long time. He was dealing with it uh, even when he was there uh, among them. So he, he was giving them at that time, and he gives it again here, a very common sense uh, truth, and yet it's a moral truth. As well, it's not just neutral. It's a moral truth. If anyone is not willing to work, then also he shouldn't eat and uh, he should be driven on by his appetite even to do what God what God uh, has for him to do, do, do what is honorable uh, for the Lord, uh, that the Lord has given us to be involved in, which is work, which is our normal daily uh, uh, mundane work. So uh, Paul says the sin that's here is... You're living an unruly life. You're living in, uh, there's some that are among you that are living an unruly life. Uh, there, and we said there were two parts to it. It's what they weren't doing. They weren't working. And so Paul says, when we were there, we were even working. You should be uh, working. But there's also a second part to it. And that is what they were doing. Verse 11, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life. There it is again for this sin. And here's what that means. Doing no work at all but acting like busybodies. So what they weren't doing was working, and this won't be a surprise to you. What they were doing was minding everybody else's business except for their own. And so the the, the undisciplined life is not just idleness. It's not just being idle. It's being an idle busybody as well. That's what it means to live an undisciplined life. And that's the sin that was uh, particularly plaguing the church in uh, Thessalonica and was in danger of uh, spreading as well as there's a group that just persisted in living this undisciplined uh, uh, life. So these are people not busy with the work that God had given them, but instead busy managing the affairs of others. And so uh, imagine the scenario in Thessalonica among the Christians that were there. And this problem seems connected to the doctrinal problem uh, in chapter 2, having to do with the day of the Lord. And uh, it, Paul doesn't say that they're connected, but uh, it seems that they were connected. So imagine uh, the this, this scenario where certain people in the church have the mistaken view that the day of the Lord has come that they're already involved in this seven-year tribulation preceding the Lord's return. And uh, they that was shaking their faith uh, because I think they had the idea that uh, if they were in that time period, that they were also falling under the Lord's uh, wrath. And so instead of working, those people were giving themselves to excited discussion in, instead, which they preferred anyway to dull manual labor. So imagine them sitting for hours around uh, the workplaces the workshops of their fellow uh, believers, trying to convince them that the day of the Lord had already come, making a pest of themselves as, as uh, the others are trying to work. And uh, they get done with all that. And then at the end of the day comes, they say, well, listen, I need some money for uh, food when I get home. You've been working uh, uh, next to me as I'm trying to convince you uh, of all this, and I need money for food or, or later at church uh, saying that they need support for uh, uh, food uh, at uh, at the church. So this is an undisciplined life. That's what Paul uh, calls it. Doing no work at all, but acting like uh, busybodies. And the scenario I told you to imagine is something like what was taking place in the church there in, uh, in Thessalonica. So that's what the sin was. It's an unruly life. It's an idea of what uh, this uh, sin was was, uh, and second, let's look at Paul's admonition to those who were sinning. 
to those who were sinning. And it's this, verse 12. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. This was a difficult problem. It was a complicated problem. It was a bad problem, a persistent problem, a stubborn problem, but it had a very easy solution, very simple solution, and it only had one solution. This is the only solution for this problem is that the persons involved in this sin to stop doing what they're doing, stop being busybodies and start working, to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. And so Paul doesn't give this by way of uh, opening negotiating position. This is it. This is it uh, for uh, those who were involved in this uh, sin. Paul had been dealing with this for a long time, from the beginning, from the church, as he says, when we were with you, we were uh, constantly giving you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Then he left and he shortly after that wrote them First Thessalonians, which deals with this problem in a more gentle way. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse 11, where Paul says to them, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. He includes that in First Thessalonians uh, chapter 4. He tells them again, First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. And that's what he's talking about, the undisciplined, those who are involved in not working and being busybodies. Busy admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Be patient even with these unruly that you're uh, admonishing. But when it comes to Second Thessalonians, this is he's dealt with it in person. He's dealt with it by letter. It's still persisting, and he's dealing with it now a third time uh, by this letter. This admonition to the uh, those who are living an undisciplined life comes as a final warning. Comes as a final warning, and what I mean is it comes as a final warning before church discipline. So he says in this way, such persons we command and exhort. It sounds solemn because it is. We command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. This is actually the second time in this passage where Paul has invoked the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're, we're going to go backwards a little bit and look at the first time when he's uh, giving instructions for uh, what the faithful should do in this uh, situation. But it's with uh, the full authority of Christ, and it's by way of command. This is it. This is the solution uh, for it. And uh, this is uh, really their final warning before they are uh, put out of uh, the church. Um, if they start obeying, that's it. That's it. It's over. Uh, and and uh, the problem is over. But if not, this is uh, the last uh, commandment. And notice he not just commands them, but he pleads with them. He pleads with them. He wants, he wants them to turn back uh, at this point. Such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread, to stop, to stop doing what they're doing, stop being a busybody, stop avoiding work and uh, do what they're supposed to do. So uh, we've looked at what the sin was, sin of living a disorderly life sin of avoiding as much work as you can and being a burden to other people and then using your time to make trouble and uh, to be uh, a busybody. That's what the sin was. We've seen Paul's admonition to those who were sinning, and that's in verse 12. Stop. Stop doing what you're doing. And uh, he gives them that command. And then the third part of this passage, and it's actually, it's probably the focus of the passage, is what the faithful were to do. 
And it's what they're to do to impose church discipline on those who would reject this and would take this sin and keep on sinning and uh, keep on in unrepentant sin and then become uh, the subjects of church discipline. So this is what the faithful were to do. And it's important. This is important for us uh, to understand and to do what the Bible says that we're to do. And it's very clear in uh, this uh, in in this passage, what that is. Paul was imposing church discipline on those who refused his command, refused his uh, final command. He had been very patient with them, but he's drawing a line at this point, and he couldn't do it alone. The church needed to do it, and so Paul addresses them as uh, a church. He addresses himself to the whole church uh, in these verses that instruct the church about uh, church discipline. The church was not to be neutral on this. The church was not to be uninvolved in this, but the church was to carry this out. And so Paul gives to the church in the verses that we're going to look at, it's verses 13 through 15 and also verse 6, he gives them five commands for what the response of the faithful in the church should be. The commands are very clear. None of them are hard to understand. Two of them are negative, don't do this, and three of them are uh, positive. And I'll just go through these uh, uh, commands. First is in verse 6, it's to keep away from those who persist in this uh, sin. Second is in verse 14, it's to take special note of them. In other words, identify them publicly by name. Um, the third is in verse 14, do not associate with them. Uh, the fourth is in uh, verse 15, don't regard them as an enemy. And uh, the fifth is in verse uh, 15, admonish them, admonish them as uh, a brother. And when Paul gives these co this command to the church to carry out this uh, church uh, discipline, the command is given to the church to do all those things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that in verse six. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. What Paul tells the brethren to do, what he tells the church to do in imposing this uh, church discipline, it's not a suggestion. It's not open to debate. It's not open to uh, modification. It's a command. And it's a command that's given in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it's as if the Lord Jesus Christ himself is giving this command to uh, the church. And this is why church discipline is such an important and solemn matter when a gospel preaching church puts someone under church discipline. Or that is when a true church, that's what a gospel preaching church is, a true church puts someone under church discipline. And the reason why it's so solemn and so important is because the Lord is in it. The Lord is in it. His name is in it. Well, how do you know that? How do you know the Lord is in it? When a, when a gospel preaching church puts someone under church uh, discipline, you can say, well, I know the Lord's in this because Paul's his apostle. And uh, Paul says, it's by the name of the Lord Jesus that I command you to carry out this church discipline on those in the church who won't repent uh, of this. But uh, so I know it's true of this church that the Lord's name, the Lord is in it and the Lord's name uh, is in it. But is it true of Another gospel preaching church, 
uh, as well. Yes, it is. And the reason why we know that is because the Lord says that his name is in it. And that's in Matthew chapter 18. Let me read this passage. It might be a familiar one to you. And it gives the whole process of uh, church discipline in a, a detailed way from uh, beginning to end, from the smallest to the, to the largest as, as the process uh, takes place. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, these are the words of Christ. If your brother sins, and it's any sin, it's any sin again, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witness every fact may be confirmed. And that's important because uh, when you confront someone over sin, it may be you just don't know the facts. And so um, if, if that leads to something unsatisfactory, then it says bring two or three others uh, who can determine what the facts uh, are. And if he refuses to listen to them, if, it, if it's not something that, that can be dealt with either by repentance or by understanding that it's a misunderstanding, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In, in other words, he's expelled from the Christian fellowship uh, as someone who you've been patient with, the church has been patient with, and uh, he's unrepentant of his sin. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that may they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there am I in their midst. What is that? That's a church. It's even the smallest church. It doesn't have to be a large church. Where two or three have gathered, gathered together as a church in my name, this is what the Lord says. I'm there in their midst. They're gathered in my name and uh, the church um, uh, acts in my name when they act in church discipline in uh this in in this way so if somebody comes to our church a visitor talks to me afterwards and i'm I'm getting to know them and they say and by the way i'm i'm under church discipline at uh, another church that's something i'd want to know about say well why why is it uh is it for believing the gospel because that would be okay because then it's not a church that's put you under uh church discipline is it for that or is it for a side issue for something different from that. I say, well, it's it's not for believing the gospel. It's for, it's for something else. It's for it's for a side issue. But they did everything wrong. Their church did everything wrong uh, in this, and we know better. We are we are actually the ones that are in the right. Well, church discipline from a gospel preaching church is not a time for a person to make a defiant stand. It's for them to realize they're fighting against the name of the Lord. Uh, the same name they say they trusted for salvation. So that's a time to come to terms, time to bend, time to be wronged even, and to make it right, the church discipline. So if I talk to somebody uh, under that uh, circumstance, I'd, I'd want to help them. I'd say, well, you know, you're, you're under church discipline here too, because we're also a gospel preaching church that's gathered together in, in Jesus' name. We need to go make that right. That has to be uh, made right. So Paul commands them to carry out this church discipline, not in his name, not in their own name, but in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's something we need to take seriously because it's something the Lord takes seriously. It's, it's uh, done in his name and with his um, approval. So there's five, at, he says, we're command, I'm commanding you to do this in the name of the Lord. There's five um, actions 
that he commands them to take. And the first one is this, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you've received from us. And of course, again, the idea is not just that they've done this once, um, but they're persisting in doing this. They're pers- they've been warned, they've been warned, and this is the final warning, and it's the idea that someone is... Um, continuing uh, in leading this unruly life. And so what he says here is keep back from them, keep away from them, draw back, shrink back from them, keep a distance, um, avoid, stand uh, stand aloof from them. That is uh, the first uh, command that uh, is given. Again, it's not especially complicated. It's an easy one to understand. Let me show you the other four commands that he given. These are found in verse 13 through 14. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. I didn't count that as one of the five, but Paul understands this is difficult. The, the, idea, the whole idea of church discipline and carrying it out on behalf of the church is difficult. And so he encourages them not to grow weary of doing good. Uh, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, it could be anything, but he's specifically talking about uh, the matter of living an undisciplined life. Take special note of that person. So there's the second command, uh, which is that the church is to mark them out specifically by name, not just uh, anyone who falls into this category and leave it vague, but uh, to speak of them to, uh, publicly and uh, specifically at this point. So that's the second command. And here's the third one. Do not associate with them. The word that's used here is quite literal. It's uh, to mix up together. It has all those words in it. And uh, it refers to uh, to mix up together socially with somebody, to spend time with them, to, we would call it, hang out uh, with them, uh, to spend time with them. So take note of that person and don't mix up together uh, with them. Don't, don't uh, spend time, don't hang out uh, with them. Do not uh, associate uh, with them so that he will be put to shame. So it's not something that's to be so subtle that the person doesn't... Uh, uh, even notice it, but it's, it's designed to put them to shame in a helpful way, to put them, uh, to shame in, uh, that way. So that's, uh, the, the, uh, third, uh, command is don't mix up together with them. And then fourth, this ha- has to do with thinking. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, as you're drawing back from them, as you're not socializing with them, as you're saying who they are, uh, publicly. Don't get carried away, he says. Don't, don't, Think of them in your mind as an enemy. Don't think of, don't make it part of a rivalry or part of uh, uh, a feud. Uh, but admonish him, and there's the fifth command, I'll talk about that, as a brother. As a brother. You don't know that the person that's under church discipline from your church isn't a believer. They're acting like an unbeliever. They're, they're persisting in unrepentant uh, sin, and if they don't care about the church discipline. It may be that they're not uh, a believer, but he says, don't at least don't think of them as an enemy. And actually when you admonish them, admonish them as a brother, because actually they may well be. And when they're restored and that's the purpose of it, it may be that when they're restored, they're not going to come back and say, well, yeah, I wasn't saved that whole time. That that's possible, but it's also possible to say, you know, I was saved. I just want to stray. I want to stray. And so that's why you're to uh, admonish them as uh, uh, a brother. He says, uh, and this is the fifth one, admonish him as a brother. Admonish him as a brother. And the purpose of church discipline is not to punish. It's never to punish. The purpose of church discipline is never to punish, but it's always to restore. 
It's always to restore. You can see that in this command, admonish him as a brother. And that is actually a key to this passage, and it's a key to understanding what church discipline is all about. It's not punitive. It is uh, restorative. And so you're not to think of him as an enemy, somebody you're trying to punish, but uh, admonish him as uh, a brother. So the word here for this fifth command, it's an important one. It's admonish. It's not just don't associate with them. Don't mix up uh, together with him. Uh, call them out uh, publicly and name them publicly. Don't think of him as an enemy, but also this fifth one, admonish him as a brother. And in order to obey that command, you have to open your mouth. You have to speak. And so uh, when the person comes and says, well, let's, let's have coffee together. Let's, let's hang out uh, together. The, the command here is not to ignore them. It's not to be silent. It's not to act like uh, you didn't hear them. It's to admonish them. It's to say, well, I'd love to after you get things right with the church, after you get things right with the Lord, because it's, it's so important that the Bible tells me that I shouldn't do that until after you make things right, until after this uh, whole matter of church discipline is clear. Persons say, well, can we write letters to each other? Can we talk back and forth uh, about old times? Well, I'd love to after after you make it right with the church. And in order uh, to, to do that, um, you have to admonish them. You have to speak uh, in that way. So don't ignore. Don't be silent to the person. You don't have to uh, avoid or be rude to them or anything like that, but simply admonish them uh, when, when you see them. That's the command that Paul gave for this uh, to be carried out in a way that would honor the Lord and through the name of the Lord. How often to admonish them? As many times as it comes up. In fact, the, the word for um, admonish here is present tense. In fact, all five of these commands are present tense. In other words, do these things, don't associate with them, don't mix up together, and keep on doing it. And admonish them and keep on admonishing them. You may have to do it more than once. It's not uh, saying admonish them once for all and then be done. Uh, but it's uh, as many times as it is uh, appropriate. And so those are the commands that are given to the faithful for the benefit of the church and also for the benefit of those who are under church discipline. Now, let me say this. Let me say this about church discipline. If niceness is your North Star, this is all going to sound wrong. Uh, if, if being nice is your ultimate commitment in life, this whole passage is going to sound like nails on a chalkboard because all these commands are not very nice, you know, to not associate with someone, to mark them out uh, publicly, to admonish them. Uh, when you see them, none of these are nice. They involve a level of conflict to do this in order to put someone to shame. And no one likes conflict. No one likes uh, conflict. And so you might hear these commands that Paul's commanding uh, the church for. In fact, he prayed for them. He knew this would be a hard thing for them to uh, carry out before he uh, told this on them. You might hear commands like this and say, you know, I, I didn't sign up for this when I became a Christian. I didn't, I didn't think this was going to be involved in this. this. This sounds difficult. This sounds complicated. I'd, I'd like for my life to be uh, a, a lot uh, simpler than uh, this. But we're not committed to niceness. We're committed to the Lord. We're committed to following the Lord. The Lord is our highest allegiance and not uh, uh, being nice. And I don't want to say, I don't want you to think I'm saying something bad about being nice. Niceness is usually just the thing that's fitting 
for every situation, almost always, in 99% of situations. So if you're in a random situation and you have to guess what it is that's appropriate in that uh, situation, being nice usually puts you right where you need to be. And a little bit of niceness goes a long way in a situation. But there's times when you need to do not what's best for you. And that's what an ultimate commitment to niceness actually is. It's, it's actually selfishness if it's what you're ultimately committed to. But there are times that come when you need to do what's best for others. And church discipline this time, this uh, unusual time, is one of those times. In fact, beware of an ultimate commitment to niceness, giving your full allegiance to niceness, lest evil people, clever people manipulate to do all manner of evil. And you may be surprised to find yourself doing things you never thought you would, like hurting other people far from you or near from you, just because you're too nice to say no, just because you're too nice to uh, ever embrace any sort of uh, conflict. So if your impulse in a church discipline situation that you're involved with because you're going to the church, you didn't want to be involved in it, but you're going to the church. If your impulse in a church discipline situation, when you see the person who's under church discipline or interact with them is to restore niceness, you're aiming for the wrong thing. In fact, you're aiming way too low because the purpose of church discipline is not for the restoration of niceness. The purpose of church discipline is for the restoration of fellowship, for the restoration of fellowship. And if you aim for niceness, you're actually, you're actually cutting off. You're cutting off the restoration of fellowship. The point is that they'd experience these things that are hard to uh, impose and be put to shame by them. Think about them. The Holy Spirit would use that to call the person back uh, to simply stopping the sin that they uh, should have stopped uh, all along. So don't aim for niceness. Don't aim for a restoration of niceness. Aim for a restoration of fellowship. That's what church discipline is about. Don't give up on them so easily. If you're just nice to them, you're saying to them, I don't really want you back. I, I just want someone that I can practice niceness with. No, if you, if you do what uh, scripture is commanded, what you're saying to the person when you interact with them is this way is, I actually want you back as a brother. I actually want you back uh, in full fellowship. And that's why you admonish them when you see them. Make it right. Repent. Uh, find forgiveness. Be restored. You can't change their heart, but you can direct them. You can admonish them towards what would restore uh, the fellowship. So don't give up so easily as to aim for niceness. If I can say it this way, don't be so cold-hearted as to aim for niceness being the thing that would restore uh, the fellowship, but rather a full restoration. And God doesn't give up on you when you stray. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. So we've all experienced this, hopefully not at the level of church discipline. Hopefully that's a, something rare, something I hope you never experience being under. Uh, but you, you do know what discipline is all about because it's part of every Christian life. It's part of every uh, Christian life whom the Lord loves. He doesn't give up on. He doesn't settle for just uh, having a nice relationship with them when things are wrong. But uh, he disciplines every son whom he receives. I'm so glad that the Lord didn't purpose in his heart to have a nice relationship with me when things were not right between us. But no, he sent his son to die on a cross, which is not nice at all. It's a vulgar thing. Uh, a death on a cross to make me his child 
to make me his child, not to restore some sort of uh, niceness. And what he did in sending his son shows me what my relationship with him is like. It's ugly. It's just like that cross because he's dying in my place for what I uh, deserved. And so he doesn't aim for niceness. He aims for a, a full fellowship, making me his child and a restoration of fellowship. And I'm so glad that God doesn't purpose in his heart to settle for a nice relationship with me when I stray. Say, well, I'm not going to bother him. I'm just going to be be nice uh, to him. No, no, the shepherd leaves the 99. He goes after the straying sheep until he finds me. And then he, he does whatever it takes, and he brings me back on his shoulders, uh, rejoicing with full uh, restoration. So we're to aim for uh, restoration. And this is why when Paul prays for this obedience, and he kind of braces them for this, because he knows this is going to be difficult. And so the first six chapters uh, of this verse are Paul praying for this um, uh, obedience, knowing that it's difficult, knowing that these commands don't mix up together with them, mark them out, admonish them. These commands are going to rub them the wrong way, are going to feel wrong uh, to them, these uh, commands uh, that he's given, giving them. When he prays for them, he doesn't pray for niceness for them. He prays for something far better. I'm talking about verse 4 and 5. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. Well, he's about to command them about um, church discipline. And then this is the prayer to, to prepare them for that. May the Lord direct your hearts into what? Into niceness as your ultimate allegiance? No. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. Into the love. That's what you need to carry out this command. To the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Into the steadfastness of Christ. Uh, perhaps you've never known the love of God. Perhaps your heart has never been directed into the love of God. Perhaps you've never come to Christ to receive his love and to be saved. If so, then come to him today and come as a sinner. Come with nothing to give. Come as somebody who needs salvation, not just to be told uh, the right way to go in your life and some guidance and and this sort of thing. Come as somebody who needs a a savior crucified in an ugly way. And that's the only way that you can ever be right uh, with God. Come to him and, and be saved. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's the command. That's the promise of uh, scripture. But if you are saved, and I think most of you are talking to you here, then may the Lord direct your heart into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ to enable you to act in obedience to these uh, commands. And I know of no better way to direct your heart into the love of God than hearing the word of God with each other together with the elements of the Lord's table that are given to you in Jesus name and not given to you by as a as a as a gift as a as a party favor so to speak for coming to church they're given to you in Jesus name to cause you to dare to believe and to believe again that the words are spoken are true and they're that they're for you and that they're spoken from God to you and they're words of love my body is for you. My blood is shed for the forgiveness of sin and that his love is for you. And so may the Lord use these words, difficult words. May the Lord use his table to direct your hearts into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. And then don't hold back, but show that love, that same love, love that does hard things to restore actual fellowship and doesn't just embrace a niceness. Don't hold back, but show that love to others in in a matter as difficult as uh, church discipline, both for the good of the church here, as well as for the good as of the 
persons under the church discipline as well. Let's pray. Dear Father, we pray that you would direct our hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Pray that you'd remind us at this table as you speak through your word, uh, through the, the person reading your scripture directly to us, and then place the bread to remind us and the cup uh, in our hands to tell us that your body is for us, your cross is for us, your resurrection uh, is for us, your son is for us, your, the blood of Christ uh, was shed for us, that it's all true. And so we pray that you'd strengthen our faith and then cause that faith to uh, transform us into a new creation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.